Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Uh, today on uh, Mexicanos 2070, we're going to be discussing a, a very interesting topic, uh, very relevant even to today's circumstances. We're going to be discussing the um, Mexican repatriations of the 1930s. And today to discuss that, we have uh, Elena Herrada. Have you heard about the Mexican repatriation? Mexican repatriation is really a couple of nice words for the mass deportation of people of Mexican ancestry in the 1930s. This was the Great Depression when an estimated one million people of Mexican descent were sent to Mexico en masse. That number, one million, it might be low. Look it up. Whatever you find, it'll be a lot. Anyway, our government moved so quickly, it didn't seem to matter that about 60% of them were American citizens born here in the USA. President Herbert Hoover, with the help of the press, scapegoated Mexicans for the worst economy in American history. Now you might think this was only in Texas and out in California, but it happened here in Detroit too. Repatriation began claiming to be a voluntary program. In Detroit, a lot of Mexicans had been recruited to work at Henry Ford's car plants, but after being laid off, they were encouraged to leave. One day in 1932, more than 400 people of Mexican ancestry got on a train headed toward the southern border, accompanied by Mexican artist Diego Rivera, who had been painting the big mural at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Rivera figured with times being so tough, they'd do better in Mexico. In fact, he put money toward a land-grant program so they could start new lives there. But there were just too many people for the program to work. And the Depression, it was even worse in Mexico. By then, the repatriation got a whole lot less voluntary. Reports of harassment, interrogations, threats of deportation, and just plain threats forced more people to Mexico. Social workers were used to tell Mexican families that they had to leave. They called those social workers the soft police. Most families took their children with them rather than separate. American-born children, U.S. citizens. The number of Mexican Detroiters had been around 15,000. It dropped to 1,200 by the mid-1930s. And in Detroit, Mexicans had no public support. Now, something President Hoover didn't do anything wrong, that the Mexican repatriation was strictly voluntary. They might say the official record shows less than 100,000 were actually deported and that they deserved it. Sound familiar? But there are others who have gathered oral histories and done historical research, revealing stories of government coercion, amounting to a kind of ethnic cleansing. Well, if you don't like hearing it that way, maybe just call it the Great Depression's Big Mexican Removal Program. Oh, I see, I see me now. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Go ahead. Um, is Julio here somewhere? Hello. He is. I just unmuted him. Okay. Because I asked Julio to present this with me because we did everything together on this work so many years ago. Um, so I want to thank you for inviting us for doing this. And I also want to say that that little film that you just saw, that was done by PBS. 
And it was really random that they called me in one day and said that they wanted to do a little short thing on repatriation. And they told me it would only take about an hour, but it ended up taking about eight hours. And they did the whole thing. And I never saw it until um, maybe a month ago. So it was like two years ago. And it just began to circulate. So I have to thank that guy from PBS for doing that random day of filming. And um, so it'll be the reason I wanted to show that was because it's so pedestrian in the way that it talks about repatriation. Like everybody that watches it could understand what it talked about. So it's not the least bit academic or esoteric in any way. And that was the, the way in which I think it's really important that we talk about everything. So Julio, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, um, I want you to just jump in and fill in where I'm leaving anything out. But so I'm going to go back and forth between how we started um, doing the um, repatriation work and where we are now. Yeah. Because the uh, you know I always tell people in these groups that we talk to or whoever I'm talking to, whether it's classrooms or anybody else, I always tell them that the only difference between then and now is that we have layers of community here now. And in Detroit, there was no Mexican community to defend the people at all. So they were really easily attacked and really easily isolated and um, made to be foreign and other. And it was just absolutely an entire narrative that was created, even to the point where the diocese had a sense of... um, from the pulpit, they would kind of say a good Mexican is a Mexican that will leave voluntarily. And we had records of that because the diocese was very involved in the repatriation and deportation. One of the, one of the things that I think is important, and um, Elena sort of touched on that at the beginning, is that <clears throat> the repatriation happened all over the country. I have friends that, that were repatriated from Montana. The fact that uh, Detroit got hit is because uh, auto plants. At, yeah. at that time, Detroit had the highest employment rate in the whole country, even in the midst of the, of the depression because of the auto industry. <clears throat> and also because uh, the agricultural industry was, was uh, very uh, rich as well. And there were a lot of Mexicanos and, and Tejanos, you know, uh, working in the industry in both of those industries. So there, were, there was a lot of work for, for Raza in, in the state of Michigan, in Detroit in particular. And that's why the focus of repatriation in, um, in Detroit happened, uh, along with the rest of the state. I mean, the border states like <clears throat> Russia, what you call Texas, California, you know, it's, it's, it's all, all of that has been well documented, but never had, had it been documented uh, from the perspective of, of the, the you know, uh, northern states, in this case, Michigan, where Elena, being a descendant of a familia, they got repatriated, um, you know, got involved, directly involved. And she picked that up from uh, the, the one of the professors at the university. Isn't that right, Elena? Yeah, uh, Dennis Valdez. Yeah, Dennis taught us about the repatriation. And um, I was in Chicano Boricua studies at the time, and my grandfather was... Um, he lived in, he, you know, I lived near him and I took my books and I went to his house and um, he, my grandfather never ever in his life 
until death admitted that they had been deported. He said that they voluntarily left. But I was able to actually take the story that Dennis was telling to us and ask my grandfather, who at the time then was about um, 87 years old, and and show him this is what scholars are saying. This is you know, and the idea of a Mexican American Chicano scholar just really it, it just blew his wig off. He was like, "What? <laughs> Wait a minute, what?" Because it was we never saw Chicano scholars before Chicano Boricua studies. And I told him this guy is Mexican, and he's a he's a doctor. He's a PhD. And my grandfather would not believe me that there was even any such thing because here in Detroit, you know, we didn't need anything like that to live well because it was auto. So, you know, it's an auto industry. So we didn't, we really did not have very many college graduates, much less um, PhDs or uh, professors in the university. And he began to talk to me more about it, but he still would never say that they were forced to leave. But in the case of my grandparents, which turned out to be the case of many other people that as we learned later, because he had served in the war here, I think it was, um, what war was 1919? World War I? The Korean? World War I. No, no, 1919. Okay. World War I. Yeah, my, my father was in the Korean War, but my grandfather was in World War I. And because he had served, he worked on the railroads um, also, and because he had served in World War I, he was able to serve, to, I guess work in the WPA and he built um, the like part of the um, Mackinac or Zilwaukee bridge and they were able to do that. But the kids, my father and his siblings were all born in Detroit. They ended up in Mexico and my grandfather and grandmother who were Mexican nationals came back to Detroit and sent money home to support their children with their grandmother. So th there was a lot of a lot of this, and you see it now as well. People who were U.S. citizens were in Mexico, and people who were Mexican nationals were here. And the nationals, because they had worked or been in the war, were legally able to work. So that was the um, situation that that we found out that my um, grandfather had to take his kids to Mexico because the social worker came and told them that they could not be on any kind of aid. And it was shortly after he took them that he was able to ascertain work. And then he sent money to um, to support them. But there was absolutely no means of support where they went. And they were from Aguascalientes. There was no means of support. They would have starved to death. And in many cases that we read about and heard about, people starved on the way. They were starved on the way there and on the way back. And they died of, two of my, my father's siblings died of childhood diseases like, um, you know, just basic um, smallpox or things that, you know, if they would have had the money to see a doctor, they wouldn't have died. So we lost a lot of people, but we don't know how many. So Elena was able to find a number of uh, people like herself that were descendants of the, of the repatriados in, in Detroit. And she went around asking as inquisitive as she is, she went around, you know, finding people. She came up with a long list of, of descendants. And uh, I was working as an organizer at the time in the in Detroit. And she asked me to to join in this project. And I said, sure, why not? It sounds like a juicy thing to do. 
um, and then there was a there was this time when Elena comes to me and she says, you know what? I went to a restaurant and I was having coffee, and this and I was talking about the repatriados issue, and this mesero comes to me and he says, you know what? Where I am from is where the repatriados ended up. You know, um, the, the the government given given piece of land. And Elena was blown away by that. It's where is that at? It's uh como se llama el pueblo? Um Tamaulipas, it was in um Bayermosa. Bayermosa, Tamaulipas. And and so he she came up to me and she says, Let's go find you. You gotta find people. We're gonna find that colonia, you know. So I drove. I drove to <laughs> you know, I got on the road, I picked up the camera and 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 drove and and, and found that community of repatriados and I interviewed people that had been repatriated from Texas. Uh, and, and all of that came together and we turned it into a documentary that eventually the city of Detroit picked up and sponsored and recognized uh, as part of the uh, 300, 300 anniversary, anniversary of the city. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and it, so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a documentary that, that after that, that uh, celebration of the city uh, anniversary, they put a number of items in a vault to be opened 50 years later. And one of those is a video of the repatriados. That's right, that's and, right. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the it's a time the capsule, yeah. A time capsule, yeah. Wow. So I, so I came back and, and, and you know, we, we put that, and, and I, in the process, I found that it came to me that, see, my mother was born in, in Texas but she was she was uh, she grew up in Monterrey, which, which is where we were born. Uh, when my mother came, you know, she was in her twenties. She came back to the states and formed a second family. And eventually, we all joined. And then when when I came and joined her, she was married to uh, uh, a, a very nice man by the name of uh, Ruben. And and he uh, he spoke no English at all. And I and I asked her what what you know, I asked her about him, you know, and she says, well, he was born in Chicago, but he was. He says, well, how come he doesn't speak English? Because he was raised in in uh, in Guadalajara. So why in the hell would he be raised in Guadalajara if he was born in Chicago? And and so my mother and him had been born in the states, but raised in Mexico. And it occurred to me that. So he was a repatriado, and so my mother and my family might have been, they never talked about it. They might have been repatriated as well. So we found, I found a, a reflection of my own personal life, you know, in, in producing and researching this project, thanks to, thanks to Elena. And that is something that Elena talks about, which is something that's called the uh, uh, um, amnesia, collective amnesia. People don't want to talk about those things because it hurts. You know, they don't want to. They don't want their children to know that they went through that ordeal of being kicked out of a country they served and they worked for, and were born in, and were born in. Yeah, yeah they were born there. I had, I was telling Carlos yesterday that um, my father on his deathbed, he said to me, yeah, he was literally on his deathbed. He died in in 2010 at age 81. And he'd been really sick and my sisters and I were taking vigil with him, you know, like, and he said to me, you know, I never liked that work you did on the repatriation. 
<laughs> it's like you had to say this to me on your parting words, you know. Like you said, I never liked that work, and it never that story never had to be told, and that was we were really ashamed of that. And it it was like, okay, thank you. Do you have anything else to tell me? <laughs> he said, well, you know, you got really good kids, and you've done some good work, and I'm proud of you. But I never liked that work. <laughs> So it was like really something that a lot of people were very offended by. And I knew that we would have to take a position that sometimes elders would stop me in the street. I'm thinking of John Villa, who was already about 93 years old. And he stopped me. He was really sharp. He was very dapper and he owned his own construction company. And he said to me, Elena, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that work? What, what is it with you asking all these questions to the people? We don't want to even talk about that. I said, well, there's a couple of reasons, but one is for because there were people who believed that they had been abandoned by their parents. They actually believed that they had been abandoned. And we interviewed them. They were three or four years old when they, when they lost, saw their, last saw their father, their mother, and they lived their whole lives believing that they had been left behind and not that this was a government action that removed them from them. So imagine the, the difference it has in your life to, to know that your, your parent did not choose to leave you. Other people that raised you had to do that because your, their, your parent was taken away. And yet people would rather keep that a secret than that, tell that to that child who's now 84 and 85 years old when they find out for the first time. That was one thing. It was to just, it was very confessional, but also to say this should never happen again, it, to, to fight it when it comes. And if, if we don't know that this had happened before, we'd be so much more vulnerable to, be, to being um, taken again in the same way. And people were much more willing to talk to us when we raised it as something that should be prevented from happening again. Because remember that when we're talking to old people in the 90s, in the 2000s, in the 2010, they were small children when this happened. And the difference between your memory of being the child who's left behind or a child who's removed and taken to another place and then returning, that's, that's a childhood memory and you have no context for it because nobody explained anything. And this is one of the things that I feel like for us as Mexicanos, as Chicanos, that we, this is how we, we'd never talk about these traumas. We don't talk about trauma as something that terrible that happened to you, something that not only happened to you, but that over which you had no control. So this is something that I think the, the project did. It, it, uh, once, once we exposed and exhibited the, uh, the project, the video publicly, a lot of people came up yeah. you know, saying that, that they had been part of that experience, their family had mm -hmm. been part of the experience. So it, it, it was sort of a, a therapeutic, you know. It was, yeah, uh, it was very them. healing. And it was an empowering, yeah. empowering uh, tool, of course, again, for them. To, to consider themselves part of that community that had been uh, abused, because uh, because many of many of the one, many of the things that, that one of the things that I think Elena keeps putting the finger on is is the fact that many of those families were deprived of the citizenship. You know, they were denied the citizenship by the fact of being kicked out of the country. You know, and they stay many stay there. Um, 
I want to raise something that Julio and I, um, just for some background, we've done a lot of work together. Julio and I did the Centro Rero work together. The Fronteras Norteñas was the group that did the, um, the repatriation work. And our committee was made up of people who themselves had been repatriated and descendants of. So we had this long standing committee, but then we formed when the, after NAFTA and after the major um, influx of new Mexicanos coming here for the first time in in many, many years, we formed a group called Centro Obrero. And sometimes we did wage claims and um, translations and things for people that were not getting paid by their employers because they were getting ripped off all the time. And we were in an office one time. Julio had the terrible, sad job of um, have the law firm that represented this family had lost this guy. He was working and he fell off a roof and was killed and he was undocumented. And Julio had to go to the little pueblito and tell the family. Do you remember this, Julio? Yes, in somewhere in Guanajuato. Yeah, but the, I remember the brother of the guy, this young guy came into Barry Waldman's office and we were downtown in his law office. And just as he was leaving, the guy said, ¿Sabes qué es el, lo peor? Es mi abuelito nací aquí. I was like, what? What? And he said, yeah, his abuelita was from Chicago. And then she had gone to Mexico. Now, I, I, want, I want to try to put, put this in your mind. There's a guy who's coming to this law office to deal with his brother's death. He and his brother are undocumented Mexican workers in Michigan. Their grandmother was born in Chicago, but repatriated. So she never had her rights of citizenship she lived her life in Mexico, had a family in Mexico who are Mexican nationals. Those people that we're talking to should have been US citizens. They should have been eligible for workman's comp. Instead, there's Julio going to their family, telling them that they don't get anything except whatever they could scrape from the employer. They had no legal rights to anything, but yet their grandmother was born in Chicago. There's, I think there's a lot more people like that than we know about. One of the things that, that um, a number of other things developed out of this project, uh, one of them was uh, uh, picked up by uh, a, a congressman in, uh, in, oh, yeah. in California. Senator right? Dunn. Senator, Senator Dunn, yeah. The, the assistant to Dunn, Senator Dunn, uh, was a Chicana, uh, uh, forget her name now, and her, her family had been repatriated. So she got, uh, once the, 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 the video made, made its rounds, she picked that up and then, so she, uh, through her work, Senator Dunn opened up hearings where people would come and, 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 and do testimonials about you know, her, their family is being repatriated. And, and the city of the, the I, I think the state of California issued a, uh, a public uh, apology mm -hmm. through his office to all the Mexicanos that have been repatri uh, repatriated instead of, from the state of California. Chicago also picked that up and, uh, and did the same thing. But more than that, Chicago uh, issued legislature so that this history be part of the curriculum in the elementary school level. That is significant. That was the other thing. Um, 
what happened in Chicago was the guy, um, uh, Vicente Serrano, who has a, he's like a TV personality in Chicago. He just called me out of the blue and said that he found out, he had just found out that his grandmother was repatriada. And he didn't know this. He didn't know that his grandmother was born in LA. And that he, so he, he invited us to Chicago and we ended up being um, expert witnesses in the legislature for the K-12 curriculum. But also he made a movie called um, A Forgotten Injustice. And his is like a two hour feature film. It won at the Chicago Film Festival. But he actually did this footage. Uh, he did a lot of coverage in Detroit. He came and did the Rivera murals because Diego was so involved in the repatriation. But he did this film where he actually, it was very raw because he took his grandmother visiting in California to her brother's grave. And there was no um, rehearsal for that. So everybody watching this film, and, and as well as to Mexicans and Chicanos, I can't even really talk about it. It's like, it was the first time that she had seen her brother's grave because they were separated from childhood through repatriation. And he tracked her down, brought her, he, he tracked everybody down and brought them together in the cemetery. And it was like a family reunion of, of the sides of the family that had been divided by the separation of repatriation. But it was very, very powerful. Thanks to, thanks to his work, uh, there was a, an attempt to, to bring, uh, to, to uh, what do you call it, draft a, uh, a, uh, a bill uh, at a congressional level to issue an apology to Mexicanos all around, right. uh, uh, across the land at a national level. But he got defeated. If, of course, he, he, never, he never saw the light of, uh, of, of day. Um, but that's, that's about as far as we got, you know, in terms of, uh, of uh, recognizing the, this part of history when it comes to uh, the reality that, that Mexicanos have lived, um, you know, in, in the States. It, it really is very much a living work though, because it's a way of connecting all the time. We had um, a chance to present this at the North American Labor History Conference. That's when Julio leafleted them about the guy stealing our work from the Ruther Library. Some gringo tried to steal our work. And that's how we actually um, got onto the, um, the real ownership of our, of our work because we had to we had to fight to defend it and we ended up being able to do that but also at that very conference we met angela O, oh, who was the attorney for the um japanese interned and we had our whole committee with us all those old people were with us <laughs> they were really old and they were sitting at the we were sitting right at the front table and she was talking and we, we really did have people that were like in their 80s and um, they had been themselves repatriados. And she was talking about the internment and about the money that they were able to get. They each got $20,000 and they had to go through all these things. And when at one point she says, 
And I tell you, I'll spit on your $20,000. And I'm, everybody in our table just really broke down because everybody, we had been discussing like, well, what are we going to do? I mean, is anybody ever going to apologize? And what if they do? I mean, what are we ever even going to want? And we, we were like, we never came to any conclusions about that, but we did know that we wanted for the story to be known. And we wanted to understand why we act like we do. When I say how we act like we do, especially in Michigan, in the places like this where we're very few in numbers, people became extremely hyper-assimilated because it was not safe to be Mexican. And they would tell you, don't speak Spanish in public. Don't live where Mexicans live because they never knew what they did. They never knew what happened for this to happen to them. They weren't doing anything wrong where they were minding their own business. They were working, they were raising their families. They never intended to return to Mexico because they had nothing to return to. And all of a sudden they're swept up and sent back. So the only thing they knew was that it was not safe to be Mexican. And we had, we ended up really um, understanding better that, that um, impulse to assimilate in that way and why we, we're never told anything about our own families or in our own culture because they were they really lived in terror. Can you imagine you just one day a knock at your door and you have to leave and you don't have anywhere to go? It's a form of exile. And they lived through that and they never knew why. They never did anything to to um, invite that. Julio. Yes, sir. Julio and, and Elena, I, I have a question. Um, can you give a little bit of the background of uh, what was going on with the with the Mexican repatriations? In other words, what was the political climate? What was the 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 climate of the country? Why did it occur in the first place? I think a lot of people maybe don't know much about the repatriation, and they don't know about. Um, what was the rationale or what was the climate at the time? If y'all could give a little bit of background about all that. Okay. Julio, you want that or you want me to? Go ahead. Okay. Well, it was the height of the depression for one thing. And uh, so the, when we talk about the decade of betrayal, as it was called in Ray Rodriguez and um, Francisco Valderrama's book, which is the seminal work on the repatriation, it was 1929 to 1939. So up until, like my family came to Detroit in 1920, having been recruited by Ford to work. And then there was another downturn and they were laid off. My grandfather was laid off from Ford in 1922. And when I say my grandfather, let me just say that I'm speaking for Mexicanos and the experience that they were having here. Cause everybody was like in the same boat. They were recruited. Some of them were in San Antonio and some of them were in the interior in Mexico, but everybody was recruited for $5 a day. But when the downturn came, they they had to leave or they had to figure something else out. So 1922, there was a big layoff. So it's kind of like there's this economy that's beginning to, to really build, but it was very tenuous. And they only worked in the plants in the, in the warmer part of the year because in the wintertime, they had to close the plants. They didn't have a mechanism for heating them then. So they had to figure out a way to survive um, during that period, like the downtimes. And then in 1922, there's this massive layoff and there was a voluntary repatriation during that time. It, later in um, 29, there was a mandatory where they went knocking on people's doors and telling them that they had to leave. In Detroit, it was social workers mostly telling people that they had to leave, but we understand that in places like 
um, St. Louis, it was at gunpoint that you had to get on a train and leave and other places where people described really violent uh, for, forced um, repatriation and deportation. Detroit didn't have that, but we were not, the, the records in the, that we have, which are the most accurate are in the diocese, of course. And um, there was 15,000 Mexicans in Detroit um, between 1928 and 1932. In 1933, there was about 4,000. And we never got those numbers up again until much, much later. But the other thing is people did not like come and say, hey, I'm back. You know, they didn't like check in because remember there wasn't a border until 1924. So you didn't need to, to um, check in at a border. So uh, people were being um, kicked out, but they couldn't come back because some of them had um, tuberculosis and other, other diseases that kept them out. A lot of people that came in this last round of migration when we were doing Centro Obrero said that their grandparents had been born in the US but couldn't come back because they had contracted um, like uh, tuberculosis mostly, but other diseases as well. And they weren't, they weren't letting them come back even though they were born in, in the US. And a lot of people didn't have a way to prove that they were born in the US because when they were kicked out, they didn't have a chance to take anything with them. So the, the impetus to get back to your question was the depression and the failing economy in the, the absolutely foolproof um, playbook of scapegoating and blaming somebody, anybody but capitalism. You can just blame somebody, it's somebody's fault. And it wasn't the the failures of the of the economic system that we were living under. It is interesting to know that that before the repatriation, there was an, a very rich infrastructure in the in the in the barrio in the community. Um, there there were businesses, there were bars, there were civic organizations, um, there were clubs, there were you know barber shops. It was it was like a a very solid community. After the repatriation, the repatriation, it all disappeared. It didn't pick up till uh, probably the seventies again. You know, the, no, it didn't pick up here until the um, till two thousand six. Right? Well, yeah, but, but by, by the seventies, of numbers, there were yeah, restaurants and there were clubs and organizations and so forth. Yeah, um, and then and, you know, so that was the impact. I mean, you, when you think about the, the community development all of that gets in the way and it takes a long while to pick up again. Uh, little, you know, if you add the, the, the fear of living right next to Canada, where you'd see the Migra going by every other, I mean, every half an hour, you know? Yeah, yeah. Does, has, has there been a, a discussion uh, about across not just in the in the Michigan area but across the board about how many Mexican Americans were deported uh, a number what's the most um, accurate number and how has that been been uh, uh, documented um, but there was, uh, you know, I mean that was documented through the the, the uh, census through, no, through the book uh, the Valderrama's book uh -huh. uh, the decay of betrayal but also, but also Elena was able to coordinate a binational conference. Remember that, Elena? 
<laughs> I did? Yeah, Julio did this conference with this, this professor reaches out to us. Remember that when we did this work, we didn't have social media, there was barely email. And we had um, done this little half hour rascuate video that was, you know, people would send us a check for $15 and we would send it to them in the mail. But this guy from the um, San Luis Potosí, a professor, was researching the repatriation and the impact of the people who, who came and went. And he invited us to a conference and that was in 2004. And that was the first encounter of Mexicans in the diaspora. Is that right, Julio? Is that the primer encuentro? It was, um, yeah, and yeah. we organized 40 people from Detroit 40 people from Detroit went and then people from across the country also attended. And we met with people from there, some of them who had never returned. And it, it, was, a, it was a huge deal because that's the first time that we had contact with the people that we had lost contact with because family members, like families like mine didn't, my family really um, didn't have anybody to read and write to so they lost contact completely with all relatives in Mexico. And other families had people that they were that they knew were still there that never had returned that had been born in Detroit. The Mexican press followed us everywhere the whole time we were there. But what they were thinking was that there was gonna be another massive um, deportation and how would Mexico withstand it? And this is the thing that, that I think is really important. And Alanis, the professor, Francisco Alanis did the work that was similar to his counterparts were, were um, Barderama and Rodriguez, but he was doing it from the Mexican um, perspective. And he was saying that nobody knew how many people ended up in Mexico from the US during that time because there weren't really accurate numbers and there was a lot of coming and going and people were not registering with anybody especially when you when you can't trust anyone so people weren't going in and signing up anywhere they were just going back and forth and we don't know for example a lot of people from detroit returned to the u.s but not to detroit so they they were going to different places or people would go um in Mexico, they would go to different um, parts of the interior where they were not from because the US government and the Mexican government were just dumping people off anywhere. So we didn't have accurate records of people actually returning to the place that they had started out. There was another, um, we had conferences every two years for a few years. We, had, we really kept up with this work for a while. And Alanis came to Detroit and Francisco and um, Ray came to Detroit. And we had a conference at the library and Julio was translating Alanis's um, paper that he was gonna present. And remember, remember you said, have you seen this? Cause he was just tearing up um, Francisco and Ray's work. He was just tearing it up and, and uh, arguing and debating it. And, and I, I told Ray about it, I said, this is really disturbing because he's just saying, he's completely disputing all of your figures. And Ray said, you have to understand that everybody had to toe a line. In Mexico, they had to let all these Spaniards in because they were, they were allowing um, people, exiles from Spain to come in at the same time. Mexico is also accepting a million people from the US 
and knowing that many of them were not born in Mexico, they were not Mexican nationals, they were US nationals, but the, but the, the US government was kicking them out. What were they gonna do? They didn't have any way, to, they were families with mixed statuses. So they had to let them in. So Mexico is telling her people, no, there's only you know 100,000. And the US is saying, we got rid of a million Mexicans. So it had to do with what, what these countries had to tell their own people for their own narrative, just like we see now, the same thing that we're seeing now. So it, it really gave another um, perspective to data collection, which is always bullshit, but it's the way in which they were telling their story. It had to be able to appease their own, um, their, you know, their own constituencies. So that was, oh, sorry. But we have a couple of questions. We're, yeah. we're we're getting close to time, and there's a couple of questions in the chat. I I just I wanted to let you know that before we got too far more, because we got okay. about 15 minutes left. Okay. Yeah. I cannot see them, so you have to tell me what they. Uh, are. Uh, yeah, we got a question coming in. It says, um, "In 2012, uh, California acknowledged that over 400,000 Mexicans repatriated from California during that era." Uh, are there any efforts to get a federal acknowledgement or apology uh, on that? As I said, we, we, uh, it was tried uh, by a representative from Chicago at one time, from, uh, and, and he, just, he just never made it to, to, uh, to be approved, you know. Um, but I, I would like to say something about that. When we saw it in California, um, there were like um, the, there was Torres, there was Sanchez, there was different people who were in, um, in the Congress and in the Senate whose fathers and mothers had been repatriated. In Chicago, when we went to get it on the um, curriculum, the whole, I mean, we went to lunch and there was like this, probably 50 people in the room that were elected officials who were able to do that. So I, that was the first time it really, it really struck me what a difference it makes to have people in elected office who can make these things happen. Because in Detroit, we'd never get that here. We'll never get that here because we're too small in numbers. But the people who, who can make that happen are the descendants. But as far as you know, there hasn't been uh, no. a move for a national, a national apology. No, in no. fact, in LA, it was the county, I think, wasn't it? It was, it wasn't even the whole state of California. It was a county. Hmm. Uh, another question we have from Alejandro is, uh, can either of you speak to the response of Mexico and the Mexican consulates during the 1930s? Um, I have a vague sense that they didn't do much, if anything, in defense of Mexican-Americans who were repatriated, but uh, would be interested in knowing more. So what was the response of the Mexican consulates? I would, Julio, you got that, or do you want me to take that? Go ahead, go ahead. If, if you, uh, the decade of betrayal is filled with documentation and direct quotes from the Mexican consulate. This, I want to say also that um, once we put out the video and we contacted um, the authors. They came to Detroit and they put out a second edition of the book because they hadn't included Detroit in the first one. And there were so many people that they could interview that they actually put out a second edition. And I will say that the Mexican consulate in Detroit 
had constant letters to the Mexican government begging for help. And as at one point has, there's the, the road back to Mexico, the literal road is filled with markers of people who starved to death or died from diseases. And they had, they had to stop and bury people along the way. And some of those people spoke in our video and said they, they talked about having to wrap people in sheets and leave their loved ones on the side of the road because there was no way to bury them. And they died of starvation. They died of diseases. And the Mexican consulate from Detroit was extremely active in trying to get the Mexican government to respond. But the, I don't think the Mexican government had any resources to do anything either. But his own daughter died. His own daughter died on the way. I think it varied from place to place. You know, there's, there was there were some areas uh, where the consulate uh, was more involved in the community than other areas. You know, it was a and case here the consulate was very involved. Maybe you could also discuss. Uh, um, do you have contact still with the descendants of the repatriated? Do any yes. Yeah, it's us. It's all of us. I have to tell you, I have to tell you this really dumb story that happened because when we started first doing the interviews, I kept on thinking, who are we going to ask? How are we going to even know? And nobody will say that they're um, part of this or people don't know that their parents and grandparents had been repatriated. And God's truth. I had a dream and my grandfather says, just ask who else was here. Ask him who else was here. And I said, ask who? And he said, you're your friends. And so I, I went through my own list and everybody that's been here like since the twenties, thirties, our families, I just went right through and asked all of them. And then we began to formulate questions to ask to our own families. And that's how we got the story. But if, when we looked at those records from the diocese, from the people that got deported during the depression, what are the names on them? Those are us, Alanis, Balderas, Gonzalez, Munoz, all of them, we could go right down the list and I could say, oh, that's so-and-so's grandfather, that's so-and-so's dad, that's so-and-so. And, -so. and that, that's how we actually were able to find it. It was so dumb. We were right we're, we're right in front of ourselves. We were like looking in the mirror, wondering who to ask. And it was us, the old people, that have, the old families, that's us. Something to consider is that this is a time-sensitive issue because many, many of the repatriados have died by now. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, they're all gone now. They're all well, gone now. Yeah. So all we can talk about is or talk to is the descendants. Yeah. Or the ones that want to recognize, accept that, that happened to their families, or or may even remember. Well, you know, after after we did the video for years, I would get a letter in the mail from somebody saying, "Can you send me the video? Because my grandmother was in it." So we didn't even have the contact with all the families, the family members. We did these interviews in the community, especially in, like in senior houses, in the. Um, in the senior centers and sometimes I, I'll, even now I'll get a request for the video because somebody will say you know my great-grandmother was in that video and I just heard about it so uh, we still get requests from the descendants but they they did not know that this happened to their families I have a question um, is there been has there been that you know of has there been any other ethnic group uh, that has been uh, even on, on, on the massive scale or even anything close to any other ethnic group besides Mexicanos that have been deported by their own country to another country? In other words, where um, citizens, 
citizens of the country were deported to another country. I, you know, I'd like to respond to that, and I can't say with certainty, but I know that Canada hasn't had any such problem, and we're right there on the border, right next to them. But also, if you think about Mexico being on the same continent and so close, and so easy to create this monster of Mexican people and yet kick them out and make them into some other. It was a very convenient scapegoat. And it, they didn't want to send Europeans back. They weren't sending Chinese people back. They weren't sending people back who it would be very expensive to deport or who they wanted. So I think Mexicans fit a particular thing. The same reason that we were recruited which was, it was easy to bring people, easy for people to get here. They were in desperate need of work. And then this, you know, the same thing that, that brought them was the same thing that made them easy to deport in other eyes and, and really um, just expel, just, you know. That's, that's the other part of the insult, you know, the yo-yo the, the relationship that we yeah. have yeah. between the countries. When they are in the need for labor or health, they call on Mexico. And then when they don't want us, they, you know, we had the repatriation. And after that, we had, we had the, um, the Bracero program where they relied on Mexicanos to come and cover for, for all the uh, people that went overseas to fight during the Second World War. We, Mexico saved the economy, kept the economy going. And then after that, there was the uh, the the Mojado, what do you call it? Proceros? The the no the, the went back. Uh, Operation oh, yeah. went back. Yeah. Operation went back, and they send them back. You know, when they want you, they open the doors. When they don't want you, they, they just send you back. And it's all the relationship between two countries. Yeah, Elena, maybe you could uh, discuss uh, the role of uh, Diego Rivera. In, in, the, in the whole Detroit, in the, that, that, uh, in the Michigan area? Uh, well, Diego was, he was here painting the mural at the height of all this. He was here, um, I think, between 30 and 32. 20, is that right? 29, 29 and 30, maybe, um, painting the mural. And he held a, a meetings in the community um, it was like a workman's circle um, meeting. And in the records that we have, it shows um, like people that were really way into trying to figure out, um, you know, like they were, they were turning like red baiting Diego saying that, um, you know, he's turning people away from the church and at the same time, Diego was meeting with people in, um, in their homes. And um, my grandfather told me that Diego gave money to him and to the other people in the community because when they were getting, when they were leaving to go to Mexico, he never said repatriated or deported. He said when they were going back to Mexico, they only, they didn't have enough money. And Diego was, gave all of his money from the painting of the mural to the Mexican community in Detroit that was being repatriated and depatriated. The other thing that he did was to try to set up the cooperatives in um, 18 de Marzo. 
And so there's a lot of people that were from Detroit that were meeting with him. And there were these meetings and there's pictures of these meetings of all these men and Diego and they're, they're signing them up to take this trip where they would get um, pieces of land to start a cooperative. And they, they had hoped that they would be able to leave Detroit and start out anew in Mexico with, with this um, land that they were getting. And Diego also, you know, he really was um, enamored with Ford and Fordism. He, he, you know, like it was an amazing plant. Anybody who sees it would just be, you know, awestruck. And he was painting it and saying, well, you know, these people here are working in this place and, you know, we could really use them back home. And there was great revolutionary spirit and patriotism for Mexico. And he was saying, well, let's go back and start all over. So he gave money to my, my dad's family and many other people. And they, they set out to go to Mexico and do this, but it turns out they were only expecting a few hundred people to get repatriated and it ends up being like a million. And the land in Mexico, of course, is not arable, except maybe 20% of the land is arable. So they weren't able to work land like they had envisioned. And they ended up just in this, what, what they referred to as a mud puddle in Valle Hermosa. And, the, and so there was really nothing for them. So a lot of the people either turned back and came back like my father's family did, they just returned. Or, yeah. or they went somewhere else. But they were the the um, little video that we did. Julio interviewed these people that never returned and actually lived the promise of the um, the cooperatives that Diego well, had. We uh, we have very little time. We got about uh, we got about two minutes, three minutes. So let's take this last question here um, from Armando Rendon says, uh, we've been facing the same catastrophe in the regard to dreamers. Uh, what should we do about that related issue, the mass deportation of children brought here and no other home? So maybe both of y'all could comment on that briefly uh, with the time we have. I think it's an important question. Well, this is something that's been lingering on, you know, over our heads for a long time. And this is another threat of, the, of mass deportation. And if it ever were to occur, it'll be very similar to to the repatriation of, uh, of uh, you know, the 1920s, 1930s, you know, where uh, 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 almost a million of individuals that have all the rights to be in this country, you know, to be sent to a country where they, they're not familiar with. They don't call that home. Add to, add to that, though, think about this. I mean, during the repatriation, the US government and the Mexican government were giving families um, enough food provisions for a family of four. And there ain't no Mexican families with four people. And if you think about the number of people who didn't have enough food to eat and starving and everything else, and the real number of people that were there, the, the, the difficulty of course was in the having to spread resources so thin, but the other part of it is, I think that the dreamers and the repatriados have this in common, and that's that they completely erode the border. They completely erase the border because now these families are completely binational and there's no way, there's no way that they're gonna be kept out. And Mexico has so many people now that speak English that are US born or US raised. And the US has so many Mexicans here, there's really almost no real border except in the minds of those who are desperate to try to maintain 
this um, duality, but it really doesn't exist. That's the thing that I think is more of a strength than anything else. And I know that it's very hard for the, um, the dreamers to have to put everything on hold the way they have, especially after they were finally able to breathe, get driver's license, get, get a, a way to you know, do something legal for their parents and everything else. But I, I think it's really, it's about to bust open. There's way too many of them. They have all okay. the power. Okay. Uh, I want to thank both Julio and Elena for this great discussion on the on a little known but should be known more uh, 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 part of uh, U.S. history and Chicano Mexicano history, uh, talking about the Mexican repatriation. So, thank you for your time and a great discussion. Uh, really appreciate it. And thank you. Where can, real quickly, where can somebody learn more about that, about the Mexican repatriation? I would say that in the books that we mentioned in um, in uh, Decade of Betrayal, in both, but especially the second edition, in uh, our little documentary, but also the um, the uh, Forgotten Injustice is so in depth. It's so in depth. Right to Mexicanos twenty seventy. If anybody wants uh, wants a copy of the video, uh, we can provide it. But more than anything, I really want to say the the bottom line of the repatriation and the and the DACA's and everything else, we are fucking indomitable. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen to that. Thank you, Lena. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, the live stream stopped. That was good, you guys. Oh, good. I hope we didn't bore anybody. I uh, no, I don't think that that was boring at all. I think that that was really that was really good. It was really good. Yeah. <laughs> I think questions. Yeah. Yeah. There. Well, there were a couple more too. Um, and there yeah. were some people. There were people on Facebook. There was a lot of people on on Facebook. There's like about a thousand people on Facebook watching. Oh. Um. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, I think there'll probably be a couple thousand more that'll watch it over the next couple of weeks. But there's, if you wanted to go on to the Facebook page, Elena, if you want okay. to, there's a, a couple of questions that we didn't get answered. Um, one of them was, so what happens to the children that were then born to US citizens in Mexico? Are they able to get some kind of naturalization from this? And the other question is also, wouldn't there be a registry in Mexico or some other kind of database in Mexico from uh, people who were a something who right. were US citizens from that era? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot of that is in um, Francisco and Ray's work, but there isn't really there wasn't really that much um, documentation as it was needed. It, not, I mean, people should have been able to claim their their citizenship. The it was their birthright, their inheritance. They should have been able to claim it. Well, and then our first call for in the first documentary that we did, we called for. Um, we called for a million green cards to be issued to the descendants of repatriados. But as as the years have passed, I realized how naive that was. It's probably more like um, 12 or 13 million of their descendants. Because if a million people were deported and 60% of them were US born, then over the generations, look at how many people that would be. Yeah, well, it's uh, what, What's also interesting too is that, so 1930 is kind of a, a, a pivotal moment 
it was uh -huh. the only census uh, in the country where, or it was the first one, maybe not the only one at this point, but it was definitely the first one where they, um, where they asked if you were Mexican or not. And there were 3 million people um, in the 1930 census that identified themselves as Mexican, which means that if they deported even a million of them, that they deported one third. Um, but 1930s is a, is a big moment because it's also, you know, the rise of, of uh, Nazi Germany in Europe. Uh -huh. And so there's just all of these like eugenic movements that are happening all over the world at this, in this moment, right? Yeah, it's, that's, yeah. yeah, it's a big that, deal. Yeah, that was when I was looking at the microfiche at the library when way back when we were starting this, I was looking at the newspaper <laughs> articles and you could see that like if you looked at the whole newspaper, um, there was there was all this action in Manchuria and um, yep. the Nazis were on the rise and there was like warnings about Hitler. Yep. And I was thinking before that, I was thinking, why didn't anybody help us? And it's like, shit, <laughs> everybody was under siege. Everybody oh. was under siege. You know, the whole world. Any any one of those um, children of the of the of the repatriated could have used the status of the of the of their deported parent or grandparent uh, as immigration sponsorship easily. I mean, uh, I don't know if anybody did did do that or they're even aware of it. Because, but uh, that's one of the basics in immigration law. Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, 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 rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.